everybody. Welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast. For more information on the vision, programs, and news of our church, be sure to check us out at www.newmarketalliance.ca. We'd like to encourage you as well that no podcast, no matter how good, can substitute for the experience of joining together in person at a worship celebration. That's where God really meets people, often through the love and ministry of others. At NAC, we meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. Now let's join this week's teaching. Yeah, and there tends to be this, this naivete, this idealism that says, you know, if we could just get back to, to the early church. How many have heard something along these lines before? Yeah. Um, if we could just back to like how it was in the early days of Christianity. Listen, um, the church in the 21st century is a lot like the early church, uh, the early days of Christianity. They were drunk. They were having sex with each other. They were going to strip clubs. They were believing crazy ideas. So yeah, we're not unlike the early church. So let me state the obvious that this is a book, a letter actually, written to a church. And, uh, and one of the first things that we, we ask when we read the Bible, if we read the Bible at all, is how does this relate to me? And well, it does relate to you, but the bigger question is, how does this relate to us, the church? Much of the New Testament is written to church, to groups of, of people, and letters were often written to be publicly read out loud in, in church gatherings. And so sometimes we have this very um, individualistic mindset when reading the Bible, when in fact, it's not all about you, it's about us, the church, we've, we've stopped reading, interpreting, understanding the Bible in community, and that's the way it was always meant to be understood. So as, as we study this over the next several weeks, you know, ask what this letter means for NAC. So I hope you, you take us up on this reading devotional challenge. And, and also, I'd like you to take a look uh, at this passage, this letter by looking at it through the eyes of its leader, Paul, um, which that may be a very different perspective for some of you. You know, you, you've gone to church, or maybe it's your first time, or maybe you're looking for a church, whatever level of involvement that you've got. If you would see it through the eyes of a leader, it's very different. So a little background on this, on this guy, this author, this man who, who will be teaching us. Paul was a guy um, raised in a devoutly religious home. Lots of rules, lots of regulations. This is your day off. This is your schedule. These are your friends. This is your diet. You know, you can touch this. Can't touch this. Dun, 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 dun. Um, you know, on and on. Very religious, very organized, very tidy. But like some of you that came from strong religious backgrounds, you didn't actually know God didn't actually love God. He didn't have a relationship with Jesus. Sometimes religion is, is the worst thing for the human soul, isn't it? So not only didn't he know Jesus, he's actually devoted his life to persecuting Christians. He's actually involved in the uh, religiously sanctioned murder of one of the early church leaders, Stephen. And so Jesus comes down out of heaven uh, through a vision, and gives Paul a bit of a smackdown. It uh, gets his attention in a way that was unmistakable. Uh, we're talking audible voice, 
stricken blind. And if you've ever heard somebody talk about um, having a Damascus Road experience, that's what they mean. A life-changing, miraculous, about-face epiphany. Uh, And I'm happy to say that Jesus is still giving people Damascus Road experiences all the time, even in 2019. I love that about Jesus, that there there are some people like a Paul where, you know, baby steps, relational evangelism wasn't going to work. He needed a dramatic encounter. He needed a, a Damascus Road experience. I don't suppose there's anyone here who you could say, I had or I know somebody who's had a Damascus Road experience. Just raise your hand. Amen. Amen. It's still happening in 2019. So Paul starts worshiping Jesus. Not only that, he becomes a missionary. He becomes a church planter. He goes from from city to city, cities that don't know anything about Jesus, and he starts teaching the gospel. People become Christians. He'll establish a church in a city, and then he goes to another city. So, So he pulls into Corinth and was there for about 18 months, He's, he's working for free. He kept a, a real job and gave his life to these people. He got the church going. And so you're not looking at a, at a mass movement yet. You're looking at a, a smallish church, smaller than Knack. We're talking probably meeting in a house, maybe 30, 40, 50 people. Um, uh, you know, some people say, like, if we could just be like meeting in a house, and, uh, and if we were only maybe 40, 50 people, then we'd be sinless and perfect and good. And hmm, it seems like when Paul left, some people came to visit him and say, hey, Paul, um, everybody is drunk and naked at the Corinth church and sleeping with each other. Is that a problem? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a problem. Um, I wish it weren't the case. I wish when we accepted Jesus we were automatically mature and wise and and we weren't subject to those old temptations. But listen, wherever people gather, Christians or not, there are issues, there are politics, there are fights, there is sin. And so Paul is miles away. He can't just hop on a plane. He writes letters to try and address all these messes. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about Corinth at this time. It's the wealthiest city in in Greece. It's a major multicultural trading center, uh, very urban, uh, somewhere between 80 and 100,000 in population. They were spiritual the way that, you know, hip North Americans are spiritual. I don't go to church, but I'm spiritual. You know what I mean? The religious expression at that time was as diverse as the population. We know that there were at least 26 uh, sacred places or temples or holy places devoted to the many mystery cults and small g gods at the time. So, yeah, spiritual, sort of, but really more known for being kind of a party town, Um, not much of a moral center, so it's understandable how there's a Greek word meaning Corinthian girl, and it came to be like a slang term for floozy, hoochie mama, 
you know? Less lady, more tramp, you know what I'm getting at here? And in short, <clears throat> Corinth is, is New York, it's LA, it's Las Vegas, it's Toronto, it's Vancouver, it's London, England, it's the coolest trend-setting cities today, that's Corinth. And those who've tried to plant churches in those cool cities know that there's challenges involved. It's very different than trying to plant a church in podunk, jerkwater, Town, right? Now, interestingly, no offense, somebody's from podunk, jerktown? I <laughs> feel like I lost the room for a second there. <clears throat> now, Paul actually wrote, this is interesting. I didn't know this until I started studying it. He wrote four letters to Corinth. And we have two of them. So 1 Corinthians is actually at least the second letter that he's written. Because in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, Now, in my former letter I wrote, and we're like, wait, is this, am I reading 1 Corinthians? Well, it's more like 2 Corinthians or 1B Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians is more like 3rd or 4th Corinthians. But we make it 2 because it's the two of Paul letters that we have. Does that make sense? It's starting to sound like an Abbott and Costello routine, I realize. But uh, two letters are missing, is my point. And we don't know where they are. We don't know. We believe that the letters and the diaries and the books that God wanted included in his message that he's given to us in 66 parts are included. And <clears throat> you're going to see that this letter is pretty aggressively scoldy. Um, but I wonder, and I have nothing to back me up on this, so please, you know, don't quote me. I just wonder if the first letter that we don't have, um, that wasn't found, and maybe it's not found because Paul wasn't exactly functioning under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Like, that first letter might have been his initial angry response, like full of Greek words for schmuck and jerk and other four-letter Greek words, you know, that he shouldn't have said. That's just a theory. I mean, how many are glad when they have the common sense to delete the first draft of the email before they... <laughs> Amen. Amen. Uh, so as we get into it, you'll see that this is a jacked-up, messed-up church. And maybe some of you have thought, why is it so hard for me to find a perfect church? And partly, that's because whenever you show up, it ceases to be a perfect place, <laughs> if it ever was perfect in the first place. Secondly, guys like Paul, who had a history of killing Christians and maybe even calling people schmucks, we don't know, and guys like me, who don't always know where the line of good taste is and once you know, tried to beat up a guy in a casino, end up being called by God to be pastors, imperfect Flawed, broken leaders, saved by grace, and dare I say, called by Jesus, and messed up nonetheless, right? So the perfect church is going to be in heaven, where you'll be with people perfected by Jesus, with all their junk worked out, and in the meantime, we have varying degrees of jacked up churches, of which the church in Corinth is one such example. And so, Try to look at these passages with, with Paul's heart, this church planter, this, this guy totally invested in these people, uh, invested in the health of this church. He loves them. As he writes this letter, he's, he's picturing their faces. He may have 
married some and, and buried others or, or dedicated their children, um, but they're severely off track and like a concerned parent, he's worried. He's worried. And so he starts off his letter and we're reading a portion of this letter out loud just as they would have in this church gathering. And so if you have your Bible or your phone and you want to follow along in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, right at the beginning, or we'll, we'll also put it up on the screen, he begins this way, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Now, first thing, right, right out of the gate is his greeting. He's reminding them that he has some spiritual authority here, an apostle called by God. Now, in every church, there's got to be spiritual leadership, somebody who's, who's got to call balls and strikes, right, um, who, who brings some direction. And God appoints spiritual leadership to do that, and in this case, an apostle. That's a spiritual leader in the church. And if there's to be spiritual leadership in the church, it has to be ultimately chosen by God. Some churches, um, they call the trained. Here's my feeling. I think at NAC, we should train the called. Uh, and that's not disparaging uh, uh, Bible colleges or seminaries. Um, but the first attribute of a leader is not a certificate from an institution. Um, it's not even an ordination from a denomination, so you can put Rev in front of your name. It is a calling from God. And sometimes it seems he intentionally chooses the least likely so that there can be no doubt it's a God thing. You know, the burnout rate for pastors is, is huge. And I wonder if part of that is because some of them took the job thinking it would be a good career choice, you know? Oh, you only have to work Sundays. And... Uh, but didn't take it because Jesus told them to take that job. And, and so when he says an apostle called by God, he's reminding the church of the authority stewarded to him by Christ. Um, and, and by the way, he's never meant to be a lone ranger autocrat. In fact, he acknowledges his brother in ministry, Sosthenes, like ministry is a team sport, it really is. You see that in Acts 18 where Paul um, uh, acknowledges his, his partners, Priscilla and Aquila. And then he, he talks about Timothy and Barnabas and Peter. He works in a team. He always has good, godly people around him to keep him accountable. Because every truly spiritual leader exercising God-given authority, he or she also needs to be under authority as well. Like, like in some ways, I lead and shepherd our board of elders, but I'm under their authority as well. I serve at the pleasure of a, of a denominational district superintendent. See, some of you don't trust spiritual authority, and I, I don't blame you. If I had seen what you'd seen, if I had gone to the church you had gone to, um, if I had seen the abuses, abuses that you had seen, like, I wouldn't either. You haven't seen spiritual leadership held accountable. So, so to have, 
you know, if they get crazy or naked or something stupid happens, there are those who can actually pull the emergency brake. And so I notice Paul, when he's traveling on the road, he brings a partner, like Sosthenes or Titus or Timothy. So he's in that hotel room. He's tempted to watch something that he shouldn't be watching. He has a spiritual brother, accountability. It's, it's, just, it's just wise. Today, we call it the Billy Graham rule. Um, and it's one thing I've noticed in my lifetime uh, and in this culture is that the idea of authority of any kind, let alone spiritual authority, is, is increasingly resisted. Not if you agree. I mean, I'm sure teachers are experiencing this cultural change. Mike, would you agree that there's a... a yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure police are experiencing this change of resistance to authority in general. Now, we don't know if Paul was the author of Hebrews... Um, But the author of Hebrews, chapter 13, 17, says, Obey your leaders. Submit to their authority, because they must give an account for you. Now, some of you say, yeah, but I'm an independent person. I want to do whatever the heck I want to do. Okay, flip it. Like, look at it from a leader's perspective. Imagine having my job. And according to that verse, I need to give and account for all of you before Jesus. That's terrifying. And Paul says that if you submit to spiritual authority, you'll make our job a joy and not a burden. And the Corinthian church had become for Paul a burden, not a joy. They were young, they were urban, they were hip, they were cool, they were trendy, filled with new converts. They were pushing the edge, trying to find some you know, hip new doctrine. But the problem in the Corinthian church is they wouldn't listen to anybody. So my first question to you is this. Do you submit to some sort of spiritual authority? Do you have some sort of spiritual authority in your life? Because the truth is, we all submit to some spiritual authority. Um, Maybe that guy who chooses to obey the girlfriend he's shacked up with, maybe the gal who takes her cues from her boss or her career, the teen taking all their direction from social media instead of their parents or God. So so who is your spiritual authority? Are you your own spiritual authority? Have you chosen good spiritual authority? Are you here at this church this morning running from the spiritual authority of another church because they told you to do something that you didn't want to do. So, so Paul, he's led them to Christ. He's planted their church. He's, he's baptized them. And now they're like, why should we listen to you? You know, we're reading more recent books. We're in the most sophisticated city in the world, and you're just like an old man with lots of opinions. He's reminding them in this first sentence of his God-given spiritual authority because if they don't at least concede that, they're really not going to like the rest of the letter. So he goes on, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. First thing he says is, to the church of God. Who does the church belong to? God, yeah. And, and this seems obvious, but in Corinth, 
they were fighting. The single people were like, this is our church. And the married people were like, well, this is our church. And the rich people said, this is our church. And the poor people were like, it's our church. And the people who spoke in tongues were, this is our church. And those who didn't speak in tongues were like, yeah. It's our church. They're fighting over everything. And maybe you've seen this in other churches, like divided by hymns versus modern worship or generational divides or racial divides or these ministry silos, everybody doing right in their own eyes, you know, separate agendas. Well, what about women's ministry? What about youth ministry? What about drums? And what Paul is saying is that the church doesn't belong to any of us. The church belongs to God. And we all need to lay down our agendas and interests and say, God, what do you want for your church? Because the death of every church is when people show up with their agenda saying, you do this or we're going to fight or we're going to leave or we're going to split this thing or we're going to make it very difficult for you. What we need to do, what I need to do is walk in and say, God, this is your church. What do you have for us? NAC doesn't belong to its leaders or its pastors. NAC doesn't belong to the alliance denomination. Churches don't belong to people. Ultimately, churches belong to God. And Jesus went to the cross. He died for the sins of his people. He rose to forgive us. He, he saved us. He, he brought us together as a church. This is his church. It has to be. And listen, I, it is fashionable, I realize, to to disparage the church, to complain about the big C church. I, I do it. I'm the worst offender. Me and my OCD, like I see every problem in this church, okay? We're working on it. But do you love the bride of Christ? Do you love her enough to serve her or are you content just to kind of stand back and complain? That's the church. It's filled with sin and sinners and problems and mistakes. But you don't stand back and say, you know, it stinks. You say, it's in trouble. I better go help. You know, like if my mom was in trouble, I wouldn't stand back and criticize. I would help her. And, that, and that's where Paul goes. That the church are all those who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. All those who have been sanctified and saved and have their sins forgiven. All those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the church is always a, a local expression, okay? The church of God in Corinth, the church of God in Newmarket. And the church, he's saying, also has a, a universal nature. All nations, all races, all times, all people, Old Testament, New Testament. Everybody who belongs to Jesus, that's the capital C church of Jesus, that's why their fighting is so dumb, because the church belongs to God, and they belong to God, and he tells them that positionally, they are sanctified, they're made holy, they are seen as pure in God's sight, and practically, living out of that position of holiness, they need to live a practical holiness. Holy means that you just, you live like Jesus, you you stop sinning and you start obeying. And if I'm being honest, I want holiness without all the obedience and discipline. 
But the Bible says elsewhere, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Let me ask you this. Are you growing in holiness? Are you hating sin and loving Jesus? Do you see changes in your life to where you even don't want to do what you used to do anymore? I mean, weren't you so encouraged for those who were last week? If you weren't here, listen to it online, the story of Rebecca who in just a few short months is, is transforming. Jesus is transforming her, hating sin, loving Jesus, changing visibly, practically, because sin is dying, and now we're living for Christ. The Corinthians didn't want to be holy. Paul says that if you are truly a child of God, then you've got to be a person who desires to live a life that is pleasing in God's sight. And then I love how he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because he, because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. That's a, it's kind of a weird thing to say. All you drunken, naked, crazy makers, I thank God for you. Like that's a guy who clearly has the heart of God. I mean, the Bible says to love your enemies and these these Corinthians are acting like enemies. I praise God for you. I love you. You ever hear that phrase that we sometimes glibly say in church, um, that this person is kind of an EGR, an extra grace required type person? And I like how Larry Osborne puts it. He says, you know, sometimes as a leader, you need to put people in boxes, it's the only way you know how to treat them. Like, this person is immature. This person is unwise. This person is dependable. They show up. Because the reality is, is that liars lie and helpers help and gossips gossip. The impulsive chase butterflies, right? And sometimes a wise leader needs to take all of that into account. But listen, a good Shepherd leader never seals the box. He knows that, that people change, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse, but almost everyone changes over time. And in order to lead well, we need to respond to where people are, not where they were, okay? I love that Paul is not going to seal the box on these people. There's good news for this broken church. Yes, he has to treat them as immature, but that doesn't have to be their identity for time and eternity. That's not how the Lord shepherds us, you know. Thank goodness that's not how he shepherded me. Until the day that we die, he won't seal the box. He patiently waits for us to turn around and repent. I mean, that is good news for broken people. So, He says, for in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Do they lack any spiritual gift? None. We'll get to this a little later in the series. But he's saying, I praise God that he's been so good to you. I praise God that he's given you all these Gifts and abilities, I praise God that you're, you're lacking in nothing, all these potential resources to do what God has called you to do, and one day Jesus will be revealed. Jesus will come back, and in the meantime, 
It's not that God has failed to give you spiritual gifts and talents and opportunities. You're experiencing a broken church because you fail to act in a way that's mature. That's the Corinthian problem. They're living in the wealthiest, hippest, multicultural, trend-setting city in the world. They got saved, and now they're running companies. You know, they're super fly. They all play guitar. They've got tats up their arm and on their neck. You know, they vape, I'm assuming. (laughs) And because of that, you know, they sort of act like they got it all together. And when you think you got it all together, you don't need anyone. You certainly don't need authority in your life. You are your own authority. Is this starting to sound like any culture that you know of? See, this is, this is something each of us needs to own. Am I maturing? Am I repenting of sin? Am I feeding myself? Um, am I practicing disciplines of the faith? Am I growing? Am I using the abilities and gifts that God has given me as a member of the church to do something collectively to make us greater? Because together we can do so much more than any of us could do individually. Amen? I mean, can I be honest? As we continue to grow, and it it is good to grow, but here's a potential side effect of of a bigger church, is that everybody thinks that everybody else has got it covered. You look around and say, oh, somebody must be paying the bills. Somebody must be serving in kids' ministry, you know? It gets easier to blend in. You start coming five minutes late and leaving five minutes early. Somebody else will take care of it. And I know none of us would go home to our family and say, you know, all right, I need to be served now, and you better make it good. Um, In a family, everybody's got a chore. Everybody does a part. Somebody takes out the trash, and somebody unloads the dishwasher. We're a family of God. God is our Father. We're his brother's and sisters, and everybody has a chore. Otherwise, we're not a family, we're a business, and we're not a business. We're, we're a family on a mission to increase the name of Jesus in New Market and beyond, to find other children that belong to the family of God. That's why we're here. And so Paul hammers them on this point, but then he concludes with a note of hope. This is Paul, right, the founding pastor He's earned the right to talk to them bluntly. But Paul's going to end on a note of hope in this first section, in this introduction. He wants to convict them, not condemn them. There's a big difference. He wants to give them hope. So our last verse this morning, 8 and 9. He, that is Jesus, will also keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Remember, this letter is being read in a church, and some of them are drunk off communion wine. And one guy's sitting with his arm around his mother-in-law. And and Paul has high hopes in, um, wait, mother-in-law? Stepmom. Sorry, I got my weird... uh, Sexual relationships mixed up there. Um, Paul still has hope that the miraculous will happen. Um, that, that God can take these sort of jacked up people and transform them into a holy, 
set-apart people, a church that can make a difference in their city. God hasn't given up on them. And some of you may feel today like God's given up on you. I want to tell you, God has not given up on you. God has not given up on us. God isn't done. A breakthrough is coming. And uh, God's a father. We're his kids. He loves his kids. And as a dad, I can tell you that even when your kids are driving you nuts, you're still not done with them. You hang in there and you love them and you discipline them and you root for them. And God's that kind of dad. He says that God will also keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to stand before Jesus and your life will have changed. You will have grown in holiness and maturity. Your gifts will have been used to bear much fruit. And that's going to be a good day. And Paul says, just because right now you're not in a good place does not mean you won't finish in a good place. God's not done. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You know what? The Corinthians were not faithful. And guess what? I'm not faithful. You're not faithful. We're not always faithful. In varying degrees, we sin, we fall short, we blow it, we, we make mistakes, we get selfish, we don't do our part. We complain when we should contribute, sin when we should serve. Where's the hope for the church? Well, it's not in the church, it's not in the leaders, it's in the risen Lord Jesus Christ who isn't done with us. He's still giving grace. He's still blessing us, still working on our hearts to convict us of sin. And Jesus loves his church. Jesus loves Knack. We're the church, and Jesus loves us, and he's working on us to make us more like him individually and collectively. And so if we're discouraged by the state of the Canadian church or by the state even of our own faith journey, Paul does the right thing in this letter by continually fixing their eyes on Jesus. Did you notice nine times in nine verses, Paul says, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. Nine times, nine verses, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. You know, maybe the best thing that I can do as your pastor is just be the guy who reminds us to turn our eyes upon Jesus to look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Maybe that's 90% of my job right there. Has Nack been blessed? You bet. Has Jesus been faithful to Nack? Has he given us places to meet over the years? Has he given us servants to serve? Has he given us leaders to lead? Has Jesus been faithful to allow us to send out pastors and church planners and missionaries out from our midst? Yes. Has there been a lot of grace here? Yes. Um, has there been a lot of peace and favor and blessing here? Yes. And here's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. Here's what he's saying to you and I. God is faithful. Will you be faithful? Will you respond to God faithfully? I want to invite the band to come back. And um, we don't always do this. Um, 
But at this point in the service, I'd, I'd like to just give you a chance to respond. Repent of sin. Give your life to Jesus. Ask him to forgive you, to be a disciple of Jesus. In fact, maybe you would, you would just close your eyes with me. Would you do that? And I wonder if in this letter to insiders, in a way, this letter to a church, maybe there's somebody here this morning who feels like an outsider and you want to be part of this family, this bride of Christ that we call the church. Um, You would say this morning, there is a tug on my heart. I don't know what it is. I'll tell you what it is. It's, It's Jesus inviting you, pursuing you, through his Holy Spirit, he says, I, I want you to be my son, my daughter. Is there anybody here who just by a raise of their hand would say, I, I want to be part of this family of Christ? Is there anybody here who would say, I have been unfaithful. And in this new year, in 2019, I want to be faithful the way God has been faithful to me. Amen. Amen. Who else? Amen. Right on. If God has been good to you, um, thank him for it now. Praise him. Be glad that you can see his transformation in your heart. God has been so good, so good to us. Will you stand as we close?